This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Today we have another very exciting and fun episode on lifestyle sports and the negotiation of meaning in these practices. For the first time, skateboarding is now included in the Olympic Games this summer. For some people, this might represent a collision of two different and even incompatible meaning systems. For others, this is rather a natural progression. Today, we will explore these debates, as well as the shared myths and stories that might facilitate the transition of skateboarding to the Olympic arenas. I'm delighted to introduce my two excellent guests who will help us explore this intriguing topic. Brian Glennie is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Norwich University, and Paul O'Connor is a lecturer in Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Exeter. Together and individually, they've both contributed some very exciting scholarship on skateboarding, as well as a recent paper on this topic of Olympics and skateboarding. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. And welcome to the podcast, Brian and Paul, and thank you so much for finding the time for this chat. Thanks for having us. Wonderful. As I said, I'm I'm really delighted and I feel that this topic and these questions that you are exploring, they are really spot on for our podcast and the topics we had before, for example, in terms of lifestyle sport. And with Sine Heuber Larsen, we talked about parkour and whether that should be an Olympic sport or not, and how people who practice this activity are quite divided in their opinions. And from your writing, I can see that people in skateboarding also have some conflicted feelings about the Olympics and skateboarding and whether those go together or not. So I really look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. But first, I would like to hear about your personal background. I know that you are both heavily invested in skateboarding as practitioners yourself. And maybe Brian will start off with this one. <laughs> I, uh, I think my first board was a uh, Power Peralta Lance Mountain Pink. I think I was 12 and it was, uh, I can still smell it. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, uh, any, anytime I want to feel like a kid, I just, uh, smell a, a brand new skateboard. And I, and I think in many ways it represents this kind of sense of youth and energy and, uh, boundless creativity. And I, and I think we still see that in skateboarding and, and, and we worry, I mean, as skateboarders that, the Olympics is going to, to kind of curtail some of that creativity and, uh, you know, streamline it into some kind of commercial product or sport. Uh, but before, <laughs> before I get into these worries, I, wa- I want to hear when Paul started skating. Sure. Well, like you, Brian, my first proper board, I had a couple of real budget bad boards. Well, my, my first proper board was a Pal Peralta. It was a Ray Barbie, red. Ray Barbie Pro Board, and and I've been saving up my money for this board, and I've been 
fetishing it for such a long time that again, like you, in my mind, this first board is, is like a magical item. It seems, you know, so important, such a landmark and, you know, all of that excitement as a young kid and, and wanting to be able to do like the best kind of tricks you can possibly do on this proper board is hugely important. And so I, I was 11 years old when I began skateboarding. Um, and I, you know, I, it just was incredibly meaningful from the start and it sense of community, a sense of identity, something I could do and actually not have the pressure of competing or getting the right kind of scores, doing it my way was, was really important for me yeah. as a kid. And, and I think it actually gave me my first real sort of work ethic. I, I was a fairly lazy kid until skateboarding came along, I think anyway, <laughs> it sort of, sort of transformed me. And, and I think, you know, it gave me the skills to actually succeed and become, you know, studious and, and get involved in doing academic work. And, yeah, that, that's a different kind of story. But uh, my research took me into other interests, looking at religion, looking, looking at ethnicity. I did my PhD in Australia at University of Queensland, studying Muslim youth in Hong Kong, lived and worked in Hong Kong for a long time, and then got, got annoyed with always looking outside of myself. And I, I wanted to start researching skateboarding and um I thought it would be easier because it's closer to home. It's more personal, but you know, that, that wasn't the case. It's actually really quite difficult researching something that's so meaningful to you, so important to you. And that led me down this path of looking at my peers, older guys who'd spent their life skateboarding as well and trying to work out why this wooden toy with wheels was so significant in the narrative of all of our lives. And, you know, Brian and I share a lot of interests there about, you know, what is this thing? What is skateboarding really? How, how do you try and conceptualize it and make sense of it when it's so magical and important to us all? Hmm. And yeah, Brian, please also share a bit of your other academic work. And, and then I'm curious to hear when, when and how you started then collaborating and exchanging ideas and, and writing together. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I got my PhD at, at University of Southern California and uh, in sensory perception uh, and, and uh, it's in philosophy. So uh, I do a lot of work on uh, sensory illusions and hallucinations and whether or not uh, there's a reality out there, which I find to be one of the most subversive ideas possible, right? I mean, this, this goes beyond like the matrix where there is a possible other reality. And uh, I just worry whether or not there's anything more than just the sensory appearances were given. So that kind of skepticism is something that I, you know, I love working with and I love the subversion of it. And I think it's because of skateboarding that I'm drawn to this. Uh, I still remember the first time I, I actually met Paul, we were in London and skating through these busy streets together. Remember this? Oh God. Uh, <laughs> and people were like literally running out of the way as these like two 40 year old plus men were just <laughs> like just skating out of control down the street. And I think, I think we skated like three or four miles that day, uh, yeah. just hitting different yeah. spots. And, and that, yeah. so, so that's where we started talking about uh, skateboarding and, and, and what it really is and how it seems like skate parks. This is our first paper together. 
um, seem to kind of be a, a weird hybrid of skateboarding. Like you're not really skateboarding when you're at a skate park because it's this like sectioned off area made specifically for skateboarding. And skateboarding is really actually meant to be done in the streets, you know, in the wild. And uh, so it kind of got us this initial idea that, that, that you're really just doing like a hybrid of skateboarding in the parks and that the parks themselves recreate um, things in the streets to skate in a safe way which is exactly not what skateboarding is for, you know. It's not, it's not to be safe, but to be out there. And it, I think this is what, what Larson was highlighting with the parkour. Yeah, I was going to say that, yeah, that was exactly the same point about creating parkour parks. It's kind of antithetical to this idea of why you are doing it in the first place. Yes, Yeah. precisely. Um, and what I, what I think is different about skateboarding and parkour is skateboarding has these places and paul wrote one of the most incredible papers on this uh places that are almost religious in nature and uh, our second meeting paul and i were in malmo sweden and we <laughs> skated i mean what was that six miles we oh, skated i mean it took forever my legs ached so bad <laughs> and then uh, to to this place called the train banks yeah. And of course, by the time we were there, we we're like, oh, <laughs> do, do we have energy to like do the tricks we wanted to do here? But um, that it, I, I felt like lighting a candle there or some yeah. kind of <laughs> religious moment. Uh, I, I mean, I certainly bled there. I sacrificed my body there. But I think that parkour doesn't have those kind of sacred spaces, as Paul calls it. Uh, which kind of differentiates things, but but it, but it also just shows like how committed skateboarding is to the streets, to its lifestyle, to kind of like subverting normal uses of architecture. Yeah, that train bank spot is really interesting actually because it is this kind of found space, but is also a DIY spot. So Pontesal worked there to create little concrete curves that were accessible to skateboarders and. Yeah, for, for Brian and I and many, many others, this is a point of pilgrimage and it plays through that nice kind of ambiguous sensation you get where you want to improve the urban environment to make it more skatable, but you don't want it to be sanitized as well. And that dynamic that we touched upon when we played around with this hybrid interplay between skatable urban space and then sanitized skate parks is also analogous to the whole dynamic in the Olympics as well. It's this tension between being able to do it and then kind of making it sanitized that it loses a little bit of its real purpose and message. And I think that's what we've been trying to pick away at is, you know, part of the message of skateboarding as well. Yeah, and I mean, now we start touching about the Olympics and that will be something that we obviously explore a lot further. Can you maybe just outline a bit of from the, that historical perspective that now we are at the point when skateboarding is coming to the Olympics, but so how long have been discussions, these discussions being held in terms of whether that could be included or that kind of movement towards the Olympics, like from this historical perspective? Hmm. Uh, who wants to go first? Brian? I mean, I, I could just give the little details of of how in the late '90s ESPN started the X Games, 
which was like a, a televised spectacle that many see as kind of the first step towards the Olympification of skateboarding. And then in uh, the 2010s, we had this thing called the Street League, where the course was kind of laid out in a way that was most consistent with both kind of what makes skateboarding great, but also could have a point system to determine what how the value of the tricks. And pretty much at that point, when Street Leaks w was founded, everyone's like, okay, this is this is the Olympics, you know, uh, you, you know, the a prelude to it. So um, when it was finally announced, it wasn't that big of a surprise, at, at least to me. What, what about you, Paul? Well, yeah, I, I find this really interesting trying to trace the timeline because we think about skateboarding as being a fairly young sport, if we're going to use the sport word. And the fact that it emerged from this DIY ethic of kids sort of piecing together roller skates and bits of wood uh, to, you know, 60 years ago to, to what it is now, it, it's, it almost seems like the very early discussions about skateboarding being in the Olympics were always tongue in cheek. They were always a kind of joke. You know, people never really took it seriously. It was almost as a way to sort of demonstrate how unsuitable skateboarding would be for the Olympics. But um, we really see what it's 1996, isn't it? At a Los, not the Los Angeles Olympics. Was it Atlanta Olympics in 96? Atlanta, yeah. And that's when, in the closing ceremony, they have this big skateboard demonstration, you know, and you've got like uh, Tony Hawks and Danny Way and, and a whole bunch of other people that are involved in that. And that, that's, I guess, that was the first moment where it was really kind of chance the idea that you could get this sport with this American. Uh, heritage at the Atlanta Olympics and, and sort of frame this as a, as a possibility model. But that was 1996. And, you know, that didn't really seem to go very far. It, you can see right. that here we are in 2020, 2020, 2021, until that really came to sort of be a reality in any way. And it, but it was such a, I mean, you know, cringeworthy spectacle, the, the <laughs> ramped <laughs> the ramps were these like insanely tall vert ramps and there was uh, you know like three people skating in concert at once and every skater was like what the you know what is yeah. this uh this is a mockery and and i think that actually partially led to the demise of vert skating uh where you just have what's called a half pipe that's very wide and about 12 to 15 feet tall and people just go back and forth on it and and it it just that the interest in that particular style of skating just ended with the rise of street skating and bowl skating and in fact in the olympic course i believe correct me paul it's mm -hmm. two different events one is a bowl and one is a street course is that is that correct yeah well it, they, they call it park so the park is what <laughs> I mean, what we would call is like a, a big kind of bowl with these flat banks and transitions, but certainly it's no half pipe, which always seemed like the the number one candidate for the Olympics. But really, the the, the park 
contest has grown out of the whole popularity in skate parks, the way in which skate parks have been built specifically, you know, uh, uh, almost to, to fit this discipline. Yeah, interesting. So we already talked, you already shared like a lot of from your personal experience. And when you talk about your own skateboarding and some of those memories, like it does sound quite different from being an Olympic sport. <laughs> <laughs> you you two like over there on the streets and some people a little bit upset about what you're doing, right? <laughs> Compared to like athletes in the Olympics and standardized, you know, performance and so on. And in your paper, in the manuscript that I'll I'll just at the link in our show notes, like you very analytically distinguish this kind of cultural clash between the Olympic narrative or this the ways that Olympic sport, what kind of meaning structure it is built around compared to skateboarding as a lifestyle sport, which is something like what you guys are doing, I guess. So maybe you can just a little bit like pick apart those concepts and ideas and, and meanings that could be incompatible in terms of skateboarding compared to the sports that are practiced or performed in the Olympics. I'll start and then and then Paul corrects me, which I think edit he <laughs> which is uh. the best the best route here. But I think she's talking about this uh, table where we have yeah. two circles. Yeah, that one. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you have on the Olympic side, you know, this kind of corporate nationalist, you know, each person is riding for a country, it's competitive, there's points. You know, it's serious. People are wearing uniforms. It's in a stadium. People have coaches. I mean, that you know, uh, you know, you're either winning or losing. You have non-participant spectators watching skateboarding, like non-skaters, which is insane to me. Mm. And uh, and it's all it, it's 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 about maintaining some degree of safety. Um, so you know, just to pick out the the opposite with skateboarding. You know, it's it's this individualist's kind of not non-sport lifestyle. Most of the companies are owned by skateboarders because you really can't make much money. the The price of a skateboard has not changed in forty years. Uh, you know, it's still one hundred fifty bucks, um, and nobody rides for you know their country. Um, and in fact, if you meet people from other countries, it's one of the greatest moments ever meeting people i'm in southern california right now i've met a brazilian skater and we were able to talk about how his scene is and um you know think through the differences and the similarities and i i don't want to just do this laundry list but the the style focus of skateboarding in contrast with the point based is absolutely crucial and this is uh something that thorpe talks about with the Lindsay lesson that happened in the 2006 Olympics with um, snowboarding. Are you guys familiar with this? When Lindsay Jacobellis uh, fell during a snowboarding event, trying to do a stylish, stylish trick and essentially lost the gold medal because of it. And the Olympics were like, this is horrible. Um, she's such a show off. And all the snowboarders were like, yeah, that's snowboarding. That's what you should have done the whole time is, you know, do a bunch of stylish tricks, have a lot of fun. And to this day, you know, Lindsay Jacobellis is thought of as one of the greatest border cross snowboarders ever, but she still has yet to win a gold medal. And this kind of branding of her as a failure continues. And I think this kind of like just picks out this difference between timed runs or point-based 
nature of Olympics versus the style centric lifestyle culture of skateboarding or, you know, board sports in this case. And what we're going to see in the Olympics is this insane clash between the two. I'm very excited to see, you know, how things fall out and, and, and I'm looking for the tensions, right? I mean, that's the most exciting part. Paul, do, do you, I mean, do you yeah. think anything crazy is going to happen? Yeah, I, I, I don't know, actually. Uh, maybe when we were first writing the paper, I, I thought that there might be some crazy scenario, but I, I'm being a bit more conservative about that now. Um, but just to kind of go back over this distinction between lifestyle sports and how that might fit in with the Olympic model, Brian's done a great job. I mean, his his kind of like structuralist way of kind of showing how there's an opposition between the Olympic model and sort of what skateboarding is like as a lifestyle sport is really helpful. And when we think about lifestyle sports, we kind of recognize this element of participation. You know, you, you don't necessarily have fans. People are involved in it. It is a lifestyle in itself. But also what Brian said about the the nationalism, you skateboarders don't have this idea of nationalism, just like surfers or snowboarders or doing parkour. They're not nationalist sports, but that's exactly what the Olympic model is about, particularly the modern Olympics. It you know, came, came to be important during the age of nations, and it's about nationalism. So whenever anyone reports on the Olympics, they are actually giving you a tally of medals of gold, silver, and bronze, and, and who's got them, which nations have got them. And that is antithetical to the way in which lifestyle sports unfold, where the most important thing really for practitioners of lifestyle sports, we think of skateboarders primarily, and this is, this is a point, again, that Holly Forbes makes with her work on the kind of transnational mobilities yeah. in lifestyle sports. She says the the most important loyalty that someone might have as an athlete in lifestyle sports would be their sponsors and they're not confined to particular nations so that's problematic for us when we kind of look at that divide what's so important in the olympics this national identity this patriotism this nationalism is just mm. redundant really when we think of how lifestyle sports have emerged and become so popular and important. Yeah, I remember just like in a mainstream sport context, there was a Finnish runner. I guess somebody said that it's great that you won this medal for Finland or something like that. And he said, he just said that, no, I just ran for myself, yes. not for the country. So I, I wonder if something like that might happen with those lifestyle sports as well, that, you know, they might actively disengage from this nationalist uh, rhetoric that is part of the Olympics. So, yeah, yeah. And, and the thing that I've actually been rather unhappy about, because you know, I, I really believe that lifestyle sports don't side on the side of nations, is since 2016, since the Olympics was announced, there's been this growing momentum of highlighting the nationality of skateboarders and and trying to again almost develop this this narrative of, of what Brazilian skateboarders are like, what Japanese skateboarders are like, what American skateboarders are like. And it leaves a bad taste in my mouth because this is brand new and 
arbitrary. It's, it's unnecessary. This doesn't enhance skateboarding for me to know where someone was born. It's, it's just, that's one of the major frustrations when you start thinking about what could be problematic is the, the idea of nationalism, particularly in a culturally and economically globally integrated system. How relevant is that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think another, like personally for me, when you're highlighting these differences, I know, Paul, that you've written on religion and skateboarding, and, and I've been highly interested in the spiritual dimension of sport. And when you talked about your own experiences and your the stuff that you've been doing and that there might be these sacred places and there's all this religious element almost to, to skateboarding, but yeah. and I mean modern sports, and if we think of Alan Gutman who wrote this from Ritual to Record, and he's saying that one characteristic of modern sport is that it's secular, so it's disconnected. It's from all this, you know, in the Greek Olympics there were the gods and all that stuff, but now the gods are gone, and now we are just you know <laughs> playing sport, and religion doesn't have anything to do with that yeah. anymore. So I, I, I'm I'm just curious how. Some scholars would say that also modern sport are something like a contemporary new religion uh, for people. So maybe you just have some thoughts on how does that religious dimension or almost religious element of skateboarding, what, what happens to that when, when we go to the Olympics? <laughs> you open a can of worms here. It's getting me to talk about religion and skateboarding. So, yeah, um, this is really interesting because when I turned my mind to the skateboarding and religion dynamic, it's been something I, I guess I was thinking about ever since I was a kid. Like this was so important to me. This was so special to me. Uh, how, how could I explore this? Because I recognize it's similarly important to other people involved in skateboarding. And there's a huge amount of of literature, as you notice, talking about Gutman, but there's there's many many scholars that have looked at this idea of the religious aspects of football, of basketball, of baseball, the ritual, and and there is something again, it's really nice, you know, from a kind of structuralist paradigm. Again, kind of take this analogy where you look at the rituals, you look at the the communion of having people together in a stadium and you go through these important calendrical events just like you would in a religious holiday. You have these kind of key moments like the, the Super Bowl, for example. Uh, and that fits, that fits really nicely with traditional sports, organized, institutionalized sports. And you can do that with skateboarding. And it, it's easy enough to do with skateboarding. But what was more interesting for me to sort of play out is, well, Skateboarding is different anyway. It's this unknown thing. And, and Brian's really the great one to talk about and how it's so unknown. But it, it is this unknown quantity. It's a philosophy. It's an art. It's a sport. But it's also this, you know, this lifestyle, this subculture. And, and therefore, when you look at it through that religious prism, it becomes even more significant. It's not simply about having this analogous, or this looks the same. What was really important for me in exploring that religious dimension in skateboarding is, is the meaning, you know? Well, there's a lot of people who were involved in skateboarding that vehemently dislike order and routine 
and law. And they see religion as part of that as well. But that doesn't mean that they're not concerned with a higher meaning. And you see a lot of people using skateboarding to sort of generate a, a meaningful life, exactly what you're concerned about in this podcast. And, and that religious dimension, that spiritual dimension is quite potent for some people. And and one of the most well-known skateboard cults is called Barrier Cult. And <laughs> they they actually have these quite distinct rituals in which they are anonymous. They wear balaclavas to hide their faces. And they only skate this kind of roadside object called a Jersey Barrier, which is almost um, partly vertical with, with a steep transition. And they only skate that. So th this is their ritual process. They call their skateboards um, daggers and knives and they cut into this transition and that's the only thing that they do. That's their ritual aspect. But the reason behind it is because they are frustrated with the celebrity lifestyle of skateboarding and the way in which it's become a sport. So this is their way to cordon off skateboarding and say, hey, hands off, this is special. You're not allowed this. And, uh, you know, I, I spoke to a lot of people, a lot of people who are involved in various forms of skateboard cults, curb cults, where they just skate curbs and secret skate park DIY cults and things like that. And again, the, the story is, is echoing that this is important, this is meaningful, and it's just for us. We don't want ESPN involved. We don't want Nike involved. We don't want Coca-Cola involved or Red Bull or whatever it might be. So what's fascinating for me is that that's a big part of skateboarding. For a lot of people, this protective subcultural preservation is important. And if they're going to preserve it by being strange and making it this quasi-cult religious aspect, they don't care as long as it's still special for them. But that mentality is part of the broader story of skateboarding, which is going into the Olympics. And and I don't know, I, I guess it's like thinking of thinking of like jazz music and, and thinking how jazz developed as this sort of unique intellectual artisan kind of subculture and how it also became mainstream and you get stuff like soft jazz and you compare that to sort of like bebop jazz of Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and they're, they're hugely different. They're so vastly different, but part of that movement towards bebop was to try and keep jazz special. Hold on. How did I get onto jazz? This is no. This is great. This is great. I'm tracking. But yeah, I, I I think I've partially answered your question, Brian. Can you make some more sense of what I've said here? <laughs> well, I mean, I think I, I mean I, th I love that comparison between you know what real jazz improvis improvisational jazz versus what what we might call muzak, you know, elevated <laughs> music, right? Um, and and the real worry is that are are we going to just see elevator music? versions of skateboarding in the olympics i knew you would be something ace like that yeah exactly thank <laughs> you that's exactly <laughs> what i was thinking well and i and i, and I you know one of the heroes a hero has already emerged if we can talk about 
kind of Olympic myth-making in Leo Baker. Uh, are you familiar with this story, um, Paul? Yeah, yeah, he, I am. So, um, yeah, please share with the rest of us who so, don't know. Yeah, Leo, Leo <laughs> is um, uh, a skateboarder who has recently uh, ha uh, transitioned and um, they were going to be on the Olympic team, the U.S. Olympic team. Forgive me if I, if I get this story wrong. I'm just too excited to like have a clear thought about this. Um, and they were, they were going to be on the Olympic team, but they were, their gender was still listed as female, as a woman. Um, by the way, there's a great paper by Barbier and Indigo Willing on this. So if I get this wrong, go, go consult the paper. Um, so, so Leo essentially was like, this Olympics is not a safe space for me. Uh, I'm not going. And I, and I think this was at the risk of her losing some sponsorships, including Nike, um, which I believe is almost t totally supporting the U S Olympic team. So, um, to my mind for her to be able to stand up and just say, I'm not going, this is not a safe space, uh, for people, uh, you know, for, you know, for me, and and I want to uh, draw attention to this particular issue. I'm not going. Um, was incredibly risky, and to me, presents already a kind of an Olympic hero. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and and I think she's actually, man, I think he Leo has already uh, emerged as kind of a victor. Um, Doubling, doubling down on a lot of incredible uh, new skateboarding. Um, uh, uh, she's got a, a, he has a skateboarding company and also um, incredible sponsorships. I think I saw a, either like a, a Jeep commercial or uh, some luxury vehicle commercial with her, with, with him as the, the main person. You can see, I was like, I, I, uh, Leo Baker is one of my favorite skaters ever, and I still am not used to uh, the the transition that was made. And you'll have to forgive me, um, but it's just all part of my kind of uh, almost worship of this hero and the incredible path that he has carved. And so, I, so again, I you know I think I think we've seen a hero emerge, and I just wonder. I, or the worry I have is what kind of zeros will emerge from this. <laughs> You know, will we see another uh, Jacob Ellis, somebody who's decided that to go for a trick that's, you know, incredibly difficult when they could go for an easier trick and just win a medal? You know, that would be a scenario that I can see happening here where the Olympics, you know, branding campaign says, what a zero. And then all the skaters are like, no, that's what skateboarding is all about. Just like sending it and going for the best trick possible. And, yeah. and I think, I, yeah, no, you know, I know Paul's like a little bit more conservative about whether or not there will be something, you know, some kind of catalyst uh, that where skateboarders can say, look, that's the real deal versus the Olympians saying that's that's a zero. That's the real, you know, fail. Um, but I but I think we're going to see something like that. And I, and I actually wonder if if uh, Zion Wright uh, might be the one. Given what happened in a in a recent skate video that Paul uncovered, yeah, 
come on, give it, give it to us, Paul. Right. You said so many interesting things. I mean, I, I completely agree with you about Leo Baker, and certainly a lot of sports nowadays are really confronting the issue of uh, how, how do you deal with trans athletes? Um, how, how do you make sense of that? How do you how do you deal with sexuality in sport as well? And and actually skateboarding had been long criticized for being this very sexist homophobic sport i mean there's a decent amount of literature out there about this in skateboarding but remarkably their skateboarding has really taken stock over the last six seven years probably efforts were happening a decade ago even more so but it's it's really taken stock of of where it was lagging and says, right, we're meant to be inclusive. We're meant to be like a, a kind of subculture for everyone. Therefore, why aren't some people included? And skateboarding has really addressed that in recent years. And it's just so amazing because we see a huge amount of young women in skateboarding now that weren't, uh, weren't as well represented partly because of skateboard media i think that social media has really helped give people more of a voice so there still is that diy ethic and and perhaps i'm a little bit more conservative about what this hero or landmark thing is because partly i feel like the really fantastic stuff in skateboarding surrounding the olympics is happening outside of the olympics so the fact that 2020 was meant to be such an important year for skateboarding because it was entering the Olympics. And it ended up being an even more significant year because of the way in which people found skateboarding during the COVID pandemic and found this individual sport you can do on your own, but you do it with other people and it's just the best thing is, 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 is how skateboarding's become the hero. In this kind of very poetic way, skateboarding's triumphed without the focus of its triumph being this given thing, you know, I mean, and that's so typical in the world of skateboarding. You, you try and set yourself up and say, Hey, look at me, look at me. I'm going to do this great trick. And it's someone that does the really smooth, no comply over to the corner that ends up taking all the glory. So um, that's wow. already happening. You know, I think that's already happening, but what you mentioned about Zion, Wright Is, is, is really really topical, and we, Brian and I included this this little excerpt at the end of the paper because he really talks about this kind of David and Goliath setup between the fact that the Olympics is this huge vehicle that wants to have skateboarding as a as a trophy in itself, and yet the truth of what skateboarding is really about is not encapsulated in the Olympics. So. There he is arguing with someone in the street because he's trying to get a trick. He's trying to get a video clip of a trick that he's doing. And someone says, you can't skate on this property. And he goes, look, you know, this is me. This is my bread and butter. This is what I have to do. I'm a skateboarder. I'm on the Olympic team. I'm an athlete. And then he is belittled by the men trying to get rid of him, by one of the security guards and the guy that owns the property. And this is from the skateboard video, Godspeed, if anyone wants to check it out. And he's belittled, and they and they say, "Well, that's you know, look at you behaving in this way, and you're representing your country in the Olympics." And it's a real put down. It's a real sting. And Zion Wright just turns around and says, "No, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong because this is how we earn our respect. 
You've got to do it in the streets. Competitions are secondary to this. And he says, you know, I've got my sponsors behind me. I've got Team USA behind me. I've got Nike behind me. This is what skateboarding is. And it's really a wake-up call. And I don't, and I sometimes think the IOC has opened Pandora's box by including skateboarding because skateboarding has got this power behind it. This is the way in which it is authentic. And in order for it to sort of succeed, you have to keep it in line with how people understand it and follow it. So what this ultimately means for the Olympics might be the challenge. And I, I think we try and play with that in the paper is like, this is you know kind of a clash of the Titans in many ways. And the, the, the problem that number of people have raised as well is that you were getting paid you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to to compete in competitions as a professional skateboarder people like Nigel Houston jumping downstairs grinding rails and they get all this adulation and the sponsorship and potentially a gold medal at the Olympics for doing this and yet if you are to do that in your downtown area in your local town or city you become criminalized and there's a huge problem with that because the model in the Olympics is still a set of steps. It's copying the urban environment. This isn't sport dominating. It's the urban environment speaking to sport. So, you know, what, what I mean is when someone goes out and kicks a football against a wall, the ultimate scenario is that they're playing football at a football pitch. But in skateboarding, when skateboarding is translated into a sport, they copy the street, they copy handrails, they copy ledges and curbs and steps. So this is a big problematic because ultimately the ideal model for which people are receiving gold medals actually corresponds with what people ultimately are doing in the streets. Just to increase the dynamic, uh, I was skating uh, downtown LA three three days ago, and we were accosted by two security guards um, who violently, you know, threw us out of out of the space that we were trying to skateboard. And I mean, this, you know, it's 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 psychological manipulation. It's physical manipulation to get us to not skate in these particular spaces. And yet, those are the spaces that are best for skateboarding. And I and I just right. can't help but but press this tension that I believe most spectators who don't skate will never sense. They will never feel that tension. And may, maybe part of the education that skateboarding is going to bring to the Olympics is this tension. And, and again, we need it. <laughs> Strangely enough, we need to get kicked Ooh. out of these spots for them to be real. So it's not, it's not a complaint, so to speak, that skateboarding is still illegal. But it's more of just this awakening to what what the reality is behind the Olympic curtain. Yeah, I'm laughing. I'm hearing the birds. So I didn't say at the beginning, but Brian is on the beach. So this is quite a nice oh summer episode goodness. for us. So yeah, yeah, I think that's quite mm -hmm. amazing. That's really <laughs> up to this. <laughs> a little bit rebellious right. spirit, oh, I guess. You want a soundproof uh, <laughs> podcast? Sorry, I'm at the beach with the birds and waves. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's good, wonderful good. for the summer. And Paul, yeah. you have something to. Uh, sorry, I interrupted. I hope you remember this what is, you wanted to say. This is a say. typical soundbite <laughs> from me, so you know you can almost imagine what I'm going to say. But again, I think that for me, I think that that element of being in the streets, that authenticity of of skating in the streets. Is not just this rebellious side of skateboarding. There's there's something that's even more uh, grounding and important about it because I believe that skateboarders have this uh, almost magical responsibility. Is is I've framed it as like urban shamans that it's their role. And this even goes back to Ian Borden and what he speaks about with looking at Henri Lefebvre and how how he conceptualizes the disturbance of space in the city. But I think that skateboarding is about injecting a little bit of festivity and magic into the banal urban environment. And it's not about it being illegal or rebellious. It's about disrupting the everyday and it's about making life meaningful. So it's not just meaningful sport. I can see that being relevant. It's not just meaningful sport. It's about meaningful life. Just like you might hear, you know, someone strumming a guitar on the corner of a street or someone breakdancing or someone throwing up graffiti. It's like these are interjections. They're, they're, they're moments that jar your everyday experience and make it that little bit more interesting or challenging or uh, exciting. And, and I think that that's not just cool i think that that's almost like a an ethical responsibility that we have to do more make the world more meaningful and you know that it's not necessarily a, a kind of way to improve everyone's life and 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 do some sort of moral good i'm not talking about charity i'm just talking about pushing people prodding them asking them to think a little bit more openly about possibility Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.